The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our reading this morning is Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, good morning, everyone. It's, it's, it's good to be able to be here. I'm glad that God made Jonathan sick, so I get to preach one more time before I ride off into the sabbatical sunset. Uh, you know, I, I want to be clear. I don't know what things come to your mind when you think about me being on sabbatical, but... Just so, you know, we're all on the same page, I don't want to see any of your faces for the next (laughs) three months, I mean, at all, and I definitely don't want to talk to you about God or your spiritual life or anything, any problems you might be having, okay, just want to make sure. No, um, my wife and I are still going to be around. Uh, What's wonderful is we're just going to show up 10 minutes late like everybody else on Sunday, (laughs) And slide into the back. Ah, it's going to be beautiful. Um, thank you all. I know it wasn't your decision <laughs> for me to go on sabbatical, but I'm thankful that I'm at a church that sees that as something that's, that's valuable. And do pray for John, Mark, and Jonathan because uh, they're going to have to pick up <laughs> some extra tasks. All right. Uh, let's begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's so good, once again, to be gathered with your people, to come before you. Um, What do I have to say that can be of any eternal significance? What can I say to reach the hearts of anybody here? I'm inadequate. I am unworthy. But you are holy, and you are present, and you know each person here. And so I ask this morning that you would take my words and you would make them yours. Holy Spirit, come and burn like fire all that is not of you, that we might see Jesus as he is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. I was uh, hanging out with another pastor a few weeks ago and we were having a conversation and Some of our anxieties came out, 
anxieties about the church, anxieties about you all, <laughs> anxieties about our own ministry. And as we were talking about various things, I think what we had in common was this, that there is this fear that, that Jesus isn't going to be enough. There's this fear that the church isn't going isn't to be enough. We live in a world, we live in a culture where there are so many things vying for our attention. And not just our attention, but vying for our hearts and our affections and, and our lives. And the fear is that Jesus just isn't going to be enough. The fear is that people would come to church, they would do the small group thing, they would worship, they would be on the membership roll, and yet in the midst of that, in the midst of all of those experiences, they would exist with this very, this very small and this very distant view of Jesus. It's a really small view. I think I've said this before, but it's the sociologist Charles Taylor that said that we live in a culture that isn't anti-religious. Rather, although you can see that at times, but it's rather that Jesus is just one option among many. And we really feel this, right? Some people go to church on Sunday. Some people go on a hike. Some people stay at home. Some people do yoga, you know, we actually do yoga at Shades. We do both, you know. I'm not, not anti-yoga. I think you get the point, you know. It was, oh gosh, I'm not going to be able to remember the authors. It was Stanley Harawas and uh, William Willimon in their book Resident Aliens that said they noticed that there was a shift in the culture when there was more people at the movie theater on Sunday than there was in church, right? And we don't consciously think about this, we just inhabit this, right? Jesus is just one option among many. He's just maybe for some, maybe just for a few, right? It's a pretty small view of Jesus, isn't it? We can have a small view, but we can also have a distant view, and we can feel this. Several years ago, uh, there was a study that was done by Christian Smith on American teenagers. You've probably heard of this study. And what did he find? Is they in, investigated what American teenagers believe about God. Right? What were the results? Well, one, it was that God is distant. Um, he's kind of like the nice uncle that you see a few times a year, maybe at Christmas in Easter. Um, he's kind of like the nice uncle that wants you to be a good person. And that's what God wants, is for you to be a good person. And that good people go to heaven. And then I think this is also telling that the highest good that you can achieve is your personal happiness. And so everything falls underneath that, right? Including who? God. 
It's not only a small view of Jesus, right, but it's a distant view of Jesus. And I feel like these views just, they exert their force on us, don't they? So much that we don't even, don't even realize it. I imagine that many of you would answer false to everything that I just said on a paper if I were to give you a theology quiz, which would be tons of fun, you know. Um, you'd answer false to everything, right? But I think we can feel this, can't we? Does it ever feel like Jesus is not enough? Does it ever feel like God is distant? Does it ever feel like he is small and powerless? Am I alone in feeling that? So this morning, right, what I want to do is what I love to do most with you all, which is to open up the scriptures together and is to contemplate, to set our minds and to set our affections on Jesus Christ, to get the view of him that we need, a view of him that's different than the view that sometimes we can feel. And I think we see this this view, this view that we so desperately need this morning in Colossians 1. So if you have your Bibles, you can open there. Look at verse 115 with me. Chapter 1, verse 15. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the first thing that I want you to do this morning is to set your mind on the reality that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. I want us to, to focus on his majesty. Have you ever heard the, the parable of the blind man and the elephant? There's this, there's this old Indian parable where a group of blind men, they come upon an elephant, but they, they don't know what an elephant is, and so they, they try to figure out what the elephant is by touching it, and it's ringing a bell for anyone. And so one man touches the trunk and says it's a snake, right? And then another man touches the ear and says it's a fan, you know, not a, like this kind of fan, you know what I'm saying? Um, that'd be really off. And then the, the last one touches the side and says it's a wall, that's breathing, but it, you know, it's a wall. It's, that's his interpretation. And so recently I heard someone take this parable and they were using it to describe various worldviews that exist in, in our culture, right? And so the idea is that no religion, no, no, no faith could have a comprehensive view of, of who God is. We're all blind, kind of reaching And so if you look at each faith and you look at each religion, each one kind of has a part of who God is right, right? Um, But it's just a piece, and then it's limited, and it's actually by bringing them all together that we might get a a full and an accurate picture, right? I mean, I think that's a message that kind of feels very comfortable and at home in our culture, wouldn't you say? 
I mean, I didn't come up with this. Somebody else said this, so I'm not going to take credit, although I really wanted to because it would make me look smart. But, then, you know, one person said, you know, there's a, there's a way that this parable would, would fall apart to make this point, and that is if the elephant spoke and said, hey, what's up? I'm, I'm an elephant. Right? And this is the scandalous. I mean, this is a scandal, and this is provocative, and it's, it's seen as arrogant, but we believe that God has spoken in the person of Jesus Christ. We believe to us who are blind that God has spoken and revealed to us who he is through his son. The Gospel of John makes this point clearly. It says that, John says throughout his Gospel, that, that We've seen the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In, in the flesh of Jesus, we've seen his glory. What does that mean? That we've seen the glory of God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus. Well, think Exodus 33 with me. There's this weird scene. I mean, it's, it's weird, right? Um, Moses tells God, or he asks God, show me your glory, God, right? And the Lord says, uh, well, I'll pass before you in my glory, but, but you can't look directly upon my face, or, or you'll what? You'll, you'll die, right? And so the Lord says he's going to put Moses in the hole of the rock, and he's going to cover Moses with his hand until he passes by, and, and, and Moses with a glimpse of God's backside. And so the moment for revelation comes, right? And what happens? What's the revelation? It's a word. It's a word about God. The Lord, the Lord, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for thousands. So what's the glory that's revealed to Moses after his Request, it's the character of God. It's who God is. It's his, it's his identity. And in the gospel of John, what he says is that that revelation of God's character that Moses longed for, you and I get to see, we get to behold in full display in the person of Jesus Christ. God's graciousness the fact that he's merciful and loving, all those things that Moses, that he heard and that he longed to see, guess what? You and I get to see them in Jesus. Here is a God who weeps and here is a God who bleeds. Do you want to see what God looks like? Do you want to know that? Look at Jesus. Look Jesus. I don't know if I want to say this. I might regret it, but I'm going to say it. You know, I've, I've had some very dear friends, dear friends, walk away from the faith in the past several years. And it's a progression that happens, right? And in each situation, I think as we know, there's, there's 
these questions, we might say are intellectual questions, but it's not simply an intellectual exercise. There, there is some pain and there is some hurt that's there. And maybe they feel that from God. Maybe they feel that from the church. And as I sit down and talk with them, I do exactly what I imagine you would do, right? I don't beat them over the head with the Bible. I sit and I listen and, and, I, and I seek to understand and I hear everything that they're reading and I, and I hear the arguments and, and I listen to the, the experiences and I, I can't deny that, that, it, that it breaks my heart and, and I hear some of the things that they're saying, but man, in each situation, I just feel like the blind man where the religious leaders are coming to him and they're saying all these things about Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has is, is healed him and he can see. And, and so it's essentially his response is, I don't know if he's a sinner. I don't know if all these things that you're saying about him that sound pretty horrible are true, but I was blind and now I see. <laughs> I just, I, I can't let go of Jesus. Because I think on the other side of deconstruction is the task of reconstruction. We all have to build our lives on something. It's inevitable. I don't care who you are and what's it, what it's going to be. But it has to be something, right? And it's not just that I've had some subjective experience of Jesus. It's as I look at Jesus, as I look at his death and resurrection, as I read and learn more about him, and I look at the history of the church, and I participate in the body of Christ, my faith is grown, and I see reasons for Jesus. But more than that, I see the beauty of Jesus. And I say, I'm... If, if we all have to bet on something, I'm betting on Jesus, <laughs> right? I'm betting on Jesus. I, I've said this before, but, and I, I think I'm saying this too, is because I know that, you know, doubts are, are, are not just outside the church. It's, it's within the church, right? You know, it, it's a part of our faith and it can be a, a very dark night of the soul when your reality is being questioned around you, everything. And so I have sympathy. I have a lot of sympathy for that, right? But I mean, in the midst of all of that, and I've asked the questions myself, but in the midst of all of it, I just keep going back to Lewis, who's like, listen, I, there are all these questions that we can talk about, but we have to wrestle with who is Jesus? And for Lewis, he says, you can go one of three ways. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And there's such a profound simplicity, like all the great thinkers in history are able to do, in that, right? He's either a liar, he was lying about who he said he was. He's a lunatic, he's crazy, he thought he was God, right? Or he's who he said he was. He's Lord. He died and he rose from the dead. And let's start there. Let's start there, with the majesty of Jesus, the image of the invisible God. You all tracking with that? Okay. <laughs> all right. The second thing I want us to meditate on this morning is on the majesty of Jesus. On the majesty of Jesus, he created 
all things. Look at verse 16. That's what Paul says. A breathtaking verse. If you want to have your affection stirred for Jesus this morning, look at verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All things were created through him and for him. There's a, a worship artist by the name of Brooke Ligertwood, I think. John Mark, are you here? Is that right? Ligertwood? John Mark's really good with last names. That's why. She, you might know her by her, her maiden name, Brooke Frazier. Now I think, I don't, I don't know what the deal is. But Brooke Frazier, maybe you've heard of her. Um, she's written just one beautiful worship song after the next. Um, she's actually, this is, this is fun. You know, we have fun in church, okay? So this is fun. She's actually a, a famous pop star in, in New Zealand, which is kind of wild. But see, wasn't that fun? Anyway, but she's also a worship artist. I mean, she's like really famous. Seriously, go look online. It's wild. Um, but she's also a worship artist. She's been, written so many songs that we sing. So uh, songs like uh, "Who You Say I Am," uh, "Fresh Wind," "King of Kings." Maybe you've heard this one. What a beautiful name! Has anyone heard that? This is a little bit of a throwback. Hosanna! Anyone? Hosanna! Yeah, that's going back. That's not for everybody, but yeah, that's Brooke. She's been doing it for a while. She's been doing it for a while. I always had a lot of respect for her and her public ministry. And so I was listening to an interview that she was giving and she said something and I was like, oh man, I want to write that down. Because she put to words what I was feeling and what I've been feeling kind of, kind of for a while now. So she says this. She says, the songs that have ministered to me so deeply are songs packed full of theology where my spirit is absorbing the truths of who God is in confessing them, and in doing so, praise is released because I'm understanding more of this God that I'm worshiping. Now, this is what I really love. So it's important that we have songs of lament. It's important that we have songs of intercession. It's important that we have songs where we're pouring out our trouble before God. But, what's the but? It's also important that we have songs that exalt God and remember and emphasize his holiness. Yes, Jesus is my savior. Yes, Jesus is my best friend. Yes, Jesus is my closest companion, but Jesus is the king of kings. Do you feel the weight of that? Jesus is the king of kings and we must never forget to revere him and treat him with the holy awe that he deserves. Whew. And in this passage, Paul writes something that's so breathtaking, I haven't fully wrapped my mind around it. And that is that all things were created through Jesus. 
through Jesus. And they were created for him, that he is the creator God. This is the powerful picture of Jesus that we need, right? Um, And for the past few years, and it's reflected in my sermons as I went back and looked, but I have not been able to get away from Job 38. I keep pondering its reality in my life, and I keep pondering it specifically as I think about the problem of evil, right? Because here's Job, and, and he suffers greatly. He suffers horribly, right? And, and so Job comes before God with all of his suffering and all of his pain, and he's asking why. God, why this suffering, right? I mean, this is not Job. This is you and I. <laughs> Let's be clear, right? And what's so shocking is that God does not give the answer that I would if I were God, you know, and I have some good ideas, you know, that God should really listen to. Um, He doesn't give the answer that I would give because I would, you know, I would, what I would talk about, oh my gosh, uh, being near, being with him, right? And that's good. And God is near and with us, but that's not what God says. What What does he say? Well, he essentially says this, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? This is God's response and say answer to Job's suffering. Isn't that surprising? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? I was was listening this week to a, a podcast that Christianity Today, the magazine, was doing with Bono. I was like, oh my gosh, Christianity Today got Bono. This is amazing, right? I texted all my friends. Um, And in the midst of it, uh, God uh, threw me a bone, right? Because uh, the host, uh, Mike Cosper, he he quoted Chesterton on this passage. I was like, come on now, that's so good, right? Um, He quoted Chesterton on this passage. And you know what Chesterton says uh, as he reflects on this passage, he's like, it's almost like God is saying to Job, um, Job, look around you. Couldn't you possibly fathom how all this came to be? If you can't fathom how all of these things came to be in the world, how are you going to be able in your finitude to fathom my ways? To fathom my purposes, to fathom what I'm doing. And so what's so remarkable is God's graciousness in this mic drop answer, right? Which is Job does not get a direct answer to his suffering, but Job gets something better. He is left in awe and wonder of who God is. He is left in in awe and wonder of a God who would create everything from nothing. He's left in awe and wonder of a God who has the wisdom to bring everything into existence. You and I, in our finitude, cannot fathom how God would do that. But you know who can fathom it? Jesus. 
Jesus. And so this morning, I just want to ask once again, if Jesus has the wisdom to create everything in the universe, does Jesus have the wisdom to guide your life? Is he capable of that? Does he know what he's doing? Does he know what he's doing? Okay, we've looked at the majesty of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the creator God. Finally, let's look at verse, uh, verses 21 and 22 in chapter 1. I want us to look at the nearness of Jesus. Verse 21 and 22. You still with me this morning? All right. I was listening to a pastor that did that recently. I was like, I should do that. Just make sure. You know? You know, because my wife's eyes will glaze over after like 30 seconds of me talking. So, you know, we're at 25 right now, just in case you're wondering. All right, you're still with me. All right, let's look at verses 21, 22. And you... Once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Before him. Um, you can put the, the slide up now if it works. So uh, this is a, a picture of a painting that we can kind of see. If anyone would like to give a donation for new projectors, we wouldn't say no. <laughs> nonetheless, right? Um, nonetheless. Uh, this is a painting by Rembrandt. It's a biblical scene. He, he painted it two years before his death in 1669. Still speaks today. Does, does anybody know what the scene is? The prodigal son. Yeah. The return of the prodigal son. Thank you for that specificity. <laughs> Just in case anyone was thinking about another prodigal son, all right? This is, yes, that's the title of it, though. The return of the prodigal son. Um, in this scene, it, it's a scene of, of what? Of reconciliation. Of reconciliation. I can remember I was at a college worship night. I was the pastor that was in charge of bringing the speaker. I, we, I brought uh, my preaching professor, Dr. Robert Smith. He was preaching to a thousand college students. It was really a beautiful night. And in front of everyone, he was talking about a racial reconciliation. Uh, Dr. Smith is, is black and, and he called me up and he said, Brad, c Brad come here. <laughs> and I was like, you know, just imagine, like, Ashley Duro, get up here right now, you know. So he calls me up, and he, he shakes my hand, and he goes, this is not racial reconciliation. And he pulls me in, and he gives me a bear hug. <laughs> and he smelled amazing. I'm just, uh, came to mind, you know, <laughs> sensory. He, he just gave me a bear hug, and this man is so godly. His embrace was so good. And he goes, this is racial reconciliation. 
I am on him and he is on me. You know, in his kind of Dr. Smith way that I'm not going to try to intimidate uh, a, a copy. Um, and it was, it was so powerful. This is reconciliation with God. This is the image. But you know what's so amazing? That this picture is still a little too dignified, right? The, the son is on his knees and the father is standing up in his, his robes with other around him. But what does the story say? Does anyone remember? The father sees the son and he has compassion. His initial response to the filthiness of his son was compassion. And then what does he do? He runs to him. Is anybody picturing the hilarity of this picture? The robes, right? To run, you'd have to pick them up. <laughs> Picking up the robes and running, right? How undignified is that? And the only image that I could think that's a comparison that I think brings the emotion and the picture of reconciliation is when soldiers return home from war now, right? I could put that, uh, an image of that on the screen. We would all be in tears, right? The family that's been alienated, right? The, the son, the daughter, and the soldier. And, and what happens when they see each other? They run to one another because they were far off. They were removed. They were alienated. But what? They have been brought near. And what does the son do with this extravagant love of the father? He says, father, I've, I've sinned against you, right? And so what does he do? He starts bartering exactly what you and I would do. Can I just be a servant? <laughs> right? Just let me do that. Um, I'll be I'll be on the fringes. You won't see me. I won't ask anything from you because I've already said I wish you were dead. I've already taken my inheritance and I completely screwed it up. So there's no possible way that I could ever be your son again. And so maybe I can be a servant and I will carry that identity for the rest of my life because I can't carry the identity of son. But what does God do? He throws a party. Bring the robe, bring the rings. What are those? Those are emblems of sonship. He not only forgives him. The prodigal son is about forgiveness, but it's also about something more. It's about identity, right? We cannot fathom this lavish display of love. We say, thank you, God, for the forgiveness, right? And we receive that, I'll be out of the way. And God says, no, no. God says, no, Bill Ferris, you will be in the seat of honor tonight. Jonathan Hayes, you will be in the seat of honor tonight. Gus, you will be in the seat of honor tonight. Emily Grant, you will be in the seat of honor. Annabeth Reese, you will be in the seat of honor. Joe Storrs, you will be in the seat of honor. Each and every one of us is brought into the seat of honor. Why? Because we deserved it? Heck no, we were filthy and we turned our backs on God. But God in his lavish display of love, because of the cross, has reconciled us to him and has said, you're not, a, you're not just a servant. <laughs> Do you know who you are? You're my son. 
and daughter who I love. I am now just getting the opportunity to be a father, and you better believe I'm going to use that in a sermon illustration. I am just beginning to get a sense, a small piece of the Father's love for us. If I, a human, could love my daughter and delight in my daughter and like her in the midst of her screaming her head off, how much more does our Heavenly Father delight in us? And that's, that's interesting to say delight. I found a lot of Christians will say that they're forgiven. But they have difficulty saying that the Lord would ever delight in them. And you know how I know that? Because I couldn't say that for 34 years of my life. The scriptures say it. Bill Ferris reads it over me all the time from the Psalms. The Lord delights in his people. Oh no, Brad, but you have no idea what I've done or what I continue to do. The Lord delights in his people. That's the love of the Father. We have been reconciled to him. And then the last truth that's so extravagant in these verses is what? That Jesus, in his nearness to us, will present us holy and blameless before God. He will present us holy and blameless before God. As some of you know, to fulfill the requirements for my program that, I am, that I'm in, currently I have to do an internship, and so I've been doing an internship a few hours each week at a um, addictions recovery center, outpatient recovery center in Birmingham. And it's been, it's been such an amazing experience. It's been such an honor. Anytime someone invites you into their story of suffering, it's an honor. I've had a stigma revealed that I didn't even know that I had, right? And so it's been a joy to be there. But what's been so remarkable is that as I've been there, um, whether the individual is from Bessemer or from Mountain Brook, guess what? They're asking the same questions. They're asking the same questions. Let me ask you this. Do you think Christianity has anything to say about these questions? First question, who am I? Second question, how can I ever forgive myself? Next question, how can I forgive others? Next question, how do I make sense of the evil and the suffering that's happened in my life? Next question, how can I have any hope for the future? How can I have any hope for the future? As I've listened to the stories of these people who have been through things that I can't even begin to fathom, I've seen this. It is not the sufferings of this time that threaten to crush us. You know what it is? It's hopelessness. It's hopelessness. It is not the sufferings that threaten to ultimately crush us. It's hopelessness. It's, it's no future. It's no future in my marriage. It's no future in my vocation. It's no future in community. It's no future at all. That 
is what threatens to crush humanity. The good news of Jesus Christ is not that we just get a, a ticket to heaven, but rather that our future is one where Jesus Christ, I don't know what this is going to look like, but our future is one where Jesus Christ is presenting us holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father. So we stand before the Father and here is Christ presenting us holy and hear this word, blameless. Me? Blameless and above reproach. It's almost like there should be a party. It's almost like there should be a party. So Jesus can look pretty small, but he is more majestic and he's closer now and forever than we can ever know. Thanks be to God. Amen.